Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us turn in God's holy word to Isaiah chapter 53. Here in Isaiah 53, we recognize that we are coming to the apex of the suffering of the servant of the Lord. Indeed, we saw last time in the first three verses that the servant of the Lord, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, was despised and rejected of men. Maybe we are left wondering and thinking, why? Why did he have to suffer? Why did this beautiful, chosen, comforting, courageous servant of the Lord need to suffer so greatly? And really, we'll find that in our text in Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. But let us hear the first six verses of Isaiah 53. Let us hear God's Word. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word and also add his blessing to the exposition of it. As we look at this passage, and we want to look at it with the theme, the servant of the Lord, our substitute. In other words, this is a a servant of the Lord who is a substitute for our sins. And we'll see, first of all, that this is a necessary substitute. Secondly, that he is a suitable substitute. And thirdly, that as a suffering substitute, his suffering is sufficient. So he's also a sufficient suffering substitute. The servant of the Lord, our substitute, and we need to first of all humble ourselves before God and recognize the necessity of him being our substitute. And we find that especially in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We recognize, first of all, even as children, don't we, that sheep are those animals who tend to go astray. They are completely dependent upon a shepherd or the protection 
of a shepherd. And here we find that there's a corporate aspect to this saying here, all we like sheep have gone astray. All humanity, every single one of us, are counted here in this phrase, all we like sheep. Every single one of us. It's a problem for you and me and you and you, all of us. And yet it's a profoundly personal strain because we've separated ourselves from a personal shepherd. Sheep have to have this personal attachment to their shepherd. And so there's a, a leaving of this personal attachment unto the shepherd. And that's why Jesus says a good shepherd knows his sheep. A good shepherd cares for his sheep and will even lay down his life for his sheep. But a worthless shepherd, he draws that comparison in John 10 verse 11 where he says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. But a hireling who is not a shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. And the hireling flees because he's a hireling and he doesn't care for the sheep. We need to have that personal attachment to the good shepherd. The one who says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and, have, and am known by my own. And so there's a personal attachment that's absolutely necessary for each one of us. But how do we get to that personal attachment again to the shepherd when we as sheep have all gone astray, when we've all been scattered, as it were, by the hireling, by a false shepherd? That's what Jesus mourned over in Matthew 9 when he saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And indeed, he, he sees that in every one of us as well. He sees it in you and me. By nature, we have all left this shepherd. We've been scattered by our own deceitful and selfish, worthless shepherding, and, and, and we've been led as sheep astray. That's what's happened already in paradise, where Satan comes into paradise really as a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And as Adam has sinned and become disobedient, Adam and Eve were those first sheep to be scattered into the bush, into away from the presence of God. And the good shepherd yet comes, and he comes to seek them out in the cool of the day. And even as they ran and hid themselves among the trees, he draws them out to himself. He could have rightly left them as Sheep without a shepherd. He could have left them as just shepherdless people. And yet, he brings them out so that he might show that he desires a personal relationship with himself. You see, when we leave the guidance of the shepherd, we leave him as Lord and as the one who guides us. And we go with our stubborn wills, with enmity against God, 
saying, you have no right shepherding me. I will go my own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. God comes to us and He says, here's the way, walk in it. We say, no, I will not. And we go our own way. That's sheep scattered without a shepherd. And it's individual for each one of us. Every one of us, we, each one of us, have turned everyone to his own way. We've turned in the wrong direction into our own ways to live unto ourselves. This waywardness has produced in us a, a desire to gratify our own flesh, our, our own selfish ambitions. Yes, this waywardness produces terrible things in this world. We think of murderers and abusers and thieves and prostitutes and drug addicts and, and so on. But every one of us needs to recognize that this is also produced equally as detested, detestable is it's produced a refined, selfish people, businessmen and women, scholars and even pastors. The bottom line is this. It's produced wayward sheep. And we all need to recognize this because we have all become guilty. And we've all continued in sin. And we're all prone to wonder. And we need to confess, Lord, You know it. We need to recognize that God does not wink at sin. It must be dealt with. And this is really the answer of the servant saw as it is dealt with through a suitable substitute. It's absolutely necessary that someone would come to be a substitute for us. Every single one of us as sinners. And He, as we see secondly in our second point, is a suitable substitute. The rest of verse 6 says, And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The Lord who is the Creator of the heavens and the earth, the One who judges everything in heaven and upon earth, the One who graciously revealed Himself as our Good Shepherd, the One who has created us as the sheep of His pasture, the one who has made a covenant of works with, with Adam and Eve and all of his descendants. He's come and says, this is the way you can maintain yourself as sheep of my pasture and to, and to be under the guidance of the Good Shepherd in this covenant of works. If you eat of the tree of life, you will have life forever. And if you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you will perish. There's obligations and there's conditions. And obviously we know what has happened, don't we? Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. And the conditions of this covenant need to be kept. Otherwise, otherwise the conditions of punishment will be distributed. And we need to recognize, even though this covenant of works is a broken covenant, Adam failed, and we all failed in him. And we can no longer keep this covenant. 
If that's the end of the story, there's only bad news because we are all under the judgment of God. But our text does not end there. It ends in God who has laid on Him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. He's given a suitable substitute. One who is the second Adam to come and to bear our sins. God has made an amazing provision for our sins. He's made a suitable substitute to bear our sins. He is the one who is that author of salvation. And His salvation begins with Him and ends with Him. The very same Lord who's created us, who's made a covenant with us, has also prepared a way, a suitable way, through a suitable substitute, that His covenant would be fulfilled in the second Adam. Christ has come. We see that in two ways. He's come, first of all, to come to live a perfect life to perfectly keep all the commandments of God, all the obligations of His covenant. He's come to keep it perfectly so that the condition of eternal life can be offered to anyone. Secondly, also Christ has come. And most importantly here in our text, as He come to do the perfect will of God with perfect obedience. He come to satisfy the very justice that is required for our sins. No, God cannot wink at sin. God cannot just overlook sin. And we call this, in theological words, penal substitution or vicarious suffering. And it simply means this. When you think of penal or vicarious, you're thinking of justice has to be satisfied. The demands, the obligations, and the conditions of the covenant of God's covenant need to be satisfied. Perfectly satisfied. And it can't be done by mere man. And so there needs to be one who would be a suitable substitute. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Isaiah says, Behold my servant. The servant of the Lord. The God-man. Who is as much God as if He were never man and is as much man as if He were never God. A suitable substitute substitute must be perfectly God and perfectly man at the same time. I can't comprehend that. I don't expect you to comprehend it. But this is the very truth of God and His Word because He needed to be God in order to bear the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. Otherwise, He could have never borne the eternal, the infinite wrath of a holy and a just God. Never. And he must be perfectly man at the same time in order to satisfy the justice of God. God could not punish himself for our sins. He could not punish an animal for our sins. He could not punish an angel for our sins. No, he had to punish us for our sins. And so therefore the answer is in this, and the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all so that He could punish Him for our sins. And He is a suitable substitute. Because this is the only substitute that would be acceptable to God. Every other human would have also continued to be a sinner and could never bear that wrath of God. And any angel wouldn't have satisfied the justice of God. And an animal wouldn't have satisfied the justice of God or been able to bear the wrath of God. But it might always leave us with a question, doesn't it? Is God just in giving His Son to pay for our sins? Is He just? Would, he be, would it be considered justice for, for us to go before a judge in a courtroom? And we were found guilty, and we were said we were told in this guilt in the verdict and in the, the sentencing that that we had to spend six years in prison and or and had to pay heavy fines. Would it would it be just for us not to go to prison and pay those fines? Would it be just for someone else to step into our place and and there to to go to prison and to pay our fines? We would say rationally as humans that that would not be just at all. The person who's committed the sin must also die. And and there we must give thanks to God for, for His eternal plan and His eternal way that through representation of Adam all sin and also through Christ the second Adam all can be made alive. That's God's way. We need to recognize right away that God has prepared this way. And God has determined what is acceptable with Him. And this is the very will and the act of God in giving His only begotten Son and laying upon Him our iniquities. You see, Jesus isn't really a martyr in the sense of we think of martyrdom. Jesus was one who set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. It was not Judas who delivered Jesus up to die. It was not the Jews who delivered Jesus up to die. It was not Pilate who delivered Jesus up to die. It was God the Father who delivered up his only begotten Son that he would die for our sins. This was God's suitable solution for our greatest problem, the problem of sin. And he gave a suitable substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that plan, we move to our third point, and we see this suffering servant as a sufficient substitute for our sins. He's a sin-bearing substitute because the consequences of sin need to be dealt with. And we find that if we move back up into our text, into verse 4. 
Surely he has borne our griefs, our sicknesses, our weaknesses. He has carried our sorrows, our pain and our sorrows. And we are reminded that God in paradise already has come and told Adam and Eve, because because you have sinned and because you have heeded the voice of your wife and you have partaken of this, this fruit of the tree that I have forbidden, Cursed is the ground for your sake, and in toil you you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. In sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground from whence you were taken. And so there's consequences of sin even in our daily life. And so this sin-bearing substitute comes and he's born of a woman to bear our griefs, our sicknesses, our weaknesses. And to carry all of our pains and our sorrows. And our text goes on. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, we looked at him and and, and we realized the just judgment of God upon sin. And so when we looked at him in all of his suffering, we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. The people of Jerusalem believed that indeed he was guilty of blasphemy. Guilty of causing an insurrection among the people. And that his suffering was his just reward because of God pouring out his wrath upon him for his sin. But despite what man thinks about suffering, God knows that some suffering is specifically undeserved. I think of Job. He lost all ten of his children, his livelihood, his health, Even his wife went against him. His friends began to question him. What kind of grave sin have you committed? I think of David after Absalom tried to usurp his father's throne. And you find Shemei cursing him and calling him a bloodthirsty man. You must be guilty. And yet he's a king after God's own heart. In both cases, the accusers are wrong. However, both of these men were indeed sinners. However, Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God, is falsely accused of suffering for sin because He is the one who has never committed one sin. He was perfect in all points. Pilate even testified of this. I don't find any fault in this man. The thief on the cross attested to this, realizing they had their own reward for their own wicked deeds, but confessed that this man, the man on the center cross, the God-man, had done nothing wrong. The point is this. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He was the just for the unjust. His suffering, yes, was for sin, but not sin that He committed. Remember, sin must be dealt with. Every consequence of sin must be dealt with. 
But here, there's a Lamb of God who's perfect, who's spotless, and who's sufficient to take upon Himself our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities, to be stricken and smitten by God and afflicted for our sins. And His suffering was and is sufficient to take away every consequence of sin, including death itself. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded, we read in verse 5, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. When we read that, we need to realize that our English language here hasn't fully conveyed what was intended in the Hebrew. When it says he was wounded for our transgressions, that doesn't mean he was just hurt a little bit. That he had a broken leg or a broken arm or, or he had a cut. It means this. It means that he was fatally wounded. He was pierced through. The better translation would be he was fatally wounded. He died for our transgressions. And when it says he was bruised for our iniquities, it doesn't mean he got a bruise on his arm or a bruise on his foot or a bruise on his leg. It means he was crushed. Literally, the Hebrew word means to crush or be crushed. To be broken down. We read it that way, but he was fatally wounded for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. You see then the sufficiency, don't you? You see the sufficiency of that substitution. As, as he bears our death physically, as he bears our death spiritually and eternally, as He becomes our substitute not only for death, but for hell itself, as He drinks the full cup of God's wrath in the darkness of the cross, even as the earth was darkened and the earth was shaking, He cries out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Why? Verse 6. Or the end of verse 5. The chastisement of our Peace was upon him. In order for us to have peace with God, to be delivered out of hell and out of death itself, there needs to be one who brings us with peace with God to dwell with him for all eternity. The chastisement of our peace. It's not Christ's peace. He was always at peace with God, forever at peace with God, and forever will be at peace within the Godhead. But it was for our peace, for our reconciliation, for a deliverance of us from 
hell itself. He was forsaken. That we would never be forsaken. And with his stripes, we are healed. Healed from going astray. Healed from our waywardness. Healed from eternal condemnation because of our sins. Healed. I think the hymn, O Christ, What Burdens Bowed Thy Head, concludes with is it's a beautiful, a beautiful poetic truth. For me, Lord Jesus, Thou hast died, and I have died in Thee. Thou art risen, my bands are all united, and now Thou livest in me. When purified, made white, and tried, Thy glory then for me. In other words, His substitutionary work for us as sinners has an effect. We die in Him. Die to our waywardness. Die to our sinfulness. We are raised in newness of life. We are in Him made purified, made white and tried. Thy glory then for me. That is healing. And dear congregation, when we think about one who is a substitute for our sins, then we realize something, don't we? That there is nothing that we need to add. We can't trust in ourselves and Christ crucified at the same time. If we trust in ourselves, we have no need for Christ to die on the cross for us. And so the question for each one of us is this. Which one of us could bear the wrath of Almighty God against sin? Which one of us could satisfy, sufficiently satisfy, the wrath of God against sin? Not one of us. Not one. Our only hope as sheep who've gone astray is in the suitable and sufficient suffering of the servant of the Lord. We would come to him as weak and weary, wayward sheep, heavy laden with with soaking wool that has caused us maybe even to be cast down. And we would come to the cross And there see that there's restoration. And we can be restored to the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep so that you might have peace and eternal life in his care. Why would you flee to the substitute today? Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their own way as sheep who've gone their own way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts that are against God, out of the way of God. And let him return to the Lord 
and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And in order to do so, we need to humble ourselves. We need to humble, humble ourselves before the cross today. Yes. As sheep have gone their own way, worthy of eternal condemnation. But to hear from the cross, I am here on this cross for you. For your sin. For your transgression. I am here bearing your guilt. I am here taking away your shame. I am here to pay the debt of your sin. And to take that God-forsaken death that you deserve upon myself because of my infinite love for you. Here, come here. Says the man on the cross, the God-man. He says, come here. Let me demonstrate my love for you. This is how I demonstrate it for you. Will you not come today to behold the servant of the Lord, your substitute, your only hope in life and in death? But no, we don't stop there either, do we? Because we do forsake our own way and we return to the Lord and we live in Him and out of Him and for Him. And because of the cross, we hear his guidance that we there, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2. Because it was by his stripes we were healed. Peter says, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your soul. And therefore, we are also encouraged through this substitute to now take up our cross and follow him as a shepherd of our souls. Amen. Oh Lord, we come before you at the end of this worship service and the exposition of your word. We see the beauty of your love being demonstrated for us on the cross. And we humble ourselves before you as sheep who've all gone astray. Lord, grant us that grace that we might return unto the good shepherd the overseer of our souls, and find in Him a remedy for our sin, a remedy for our waywardness, that by His stripes we also will be healed. We ask this, Lord, knowing that salvation is completely from You and through You, unto your glory. And so take your word, penetrate our hearts and our lives. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.